Thanks for tuning in to the 168 Podcast, a podcast from Mitchell Knight and Jordan Bird of the Clarence Church of Christ, aimed at helping you connect Sunday worship with everyday life. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the 168 Podcast. And today we're going to be talking about the letter of Jude in the New Testament. And this has been a focus that Mitch has been having a little bit of focus on in his current class in school, right? I think I have that right. Yeah. So that's kind of the where we got this idea from to kind of talk about it because you it piqued your interest and, and we've been talking about it. So why don't you get us started with some of the things you've discovered about Jude or the things that piqued your interest to kind of start talking about it in general? Yeah, so part of the reason I wanted to do this mini-series on the shortest uh, books of the New Testament was just because of how things are theologically overlooked in some of these letters. Like, you know, for instance, with Philemon, like we talked about, maybe we didn't bring this up too much, but people like nowadays will bring up Philemon with regarding the whole slavery topic, but not really necessarily getting at what the letters intended to do, which is kind of instruct us on what forgiveness looks like between brothers and how that kind of restru- how Christ restructures our identity to where all of us are equal. Uh, and the same thing with Jude. Uh, I feel like Jude just might be that letter in the New Testament that people accidentally turn to when they're on their way to Revelation. Uh, it's just one chapter. It's just Jude. And um, it does have a lot of uh, really good things to say. Um, it has a lot of... Uh, it has some really good things to uh, inform us regarding our faith. Um, and specifically Jude being um, a brother of Jesus is very interesting as well. Um, the fact that there's almost no mention of that, you know, he's not grasping at that. He's not using that as like a, like, you know, like a power grab. He's, not putting his identity in being the earthly brother of Jesus. He's putting his identity in the faith that he's called all the Lord's people to contend for, which I think um, is a cool little lesson in humility. And then same with James as well, but that's besides the point. Um, So yeah, uh, you know, just reading through Jude, there's some really good stuff that's there that I think uh, people overlook because maybe they'd rather read something else. So yeah. On a not serious note, it always makes me think of the song "Hey Jude." Hey Jude, yeah, it's a good song. <laughs> I don't know, just it makes me think of that. But anyway, yeah, Jude is definitely one of those can get easily overlooked parts of the Bible. In that, yeah, it's super short, so it's easy to just like pass over. It's right there before Revelation, which gets a lot of attention. So you can easily flip past it. It it also is a a writing that has a lot of references to a lot of other places in the Bible, which have some interpretive challenges for just the history involved and like kind of piecing it together and understanding things that aren't just like super directly laid out in scripture. Um, but yet it's, it's still in there because it's part of the, the Jewish culture and, and, and stories that were passed down in Jewish culture. And it's there in scripture too, but, I think that's also one of the reasons that it's maybe not referenced as often. And and some people don't know what to do with some of the references in there too. It's like, I don't know what to do with that. What's it got to do with me going to work every day. So I I can see how it can become 
of writing that isn't like the go-to. It's not like a James where it seems like it has just easy practical things you can take away from it. But there are, for being, uh, what is it? It's only uh, 25 verses yeah. long. I mean, the verse numbers weren't there originally, but anyway, I mean, it's it's not very long. So um, it doesn't take long to read through, but there there are some good nuggets of things throughout it. And we're just going to focus on a few of those this morning, really. I think just two, if there's a third one, might pop in there. But um, is there, well, I'll, I'll start with the one I think, I think the one I mentioned pops up here first. Um, yeah, so it's the f- third verse in, says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. And this verse stands out to me because, one, it's a verse, I think, that uh, was on one of the textbooks I had in in school for theology. Uh, And so it, it stands out from that, just thinking back to it. But it stands out also in that it's, talking about the faith that is shared by all across history. Like it's not this, we each have to come up with our own understanding of who Jesus is. And then we all have to like help each other agree to that. It's like, no, we've been passed down a faith that we all get to believe together. It's not something we have to like construct or make, make happen. It's something that we get to receive and we have received. And so to me, there's something very unique and awesome about that, that what I, have the opportunity to believe and interact with in my relationship with Jesus is the same person and same relationship that someone hundreds of years ago also shared. And that that same person, that same Jesus is the same one I get to interact with today. So there's something just like how many other things in, in, in our life do we have that kind of commonality with, with something in history? I mean, we can say we have like ancestors or, our family came from blah, blah, blah area or whatever it may be. Like there's things that can tie us to the past, but very rarely are there things that like we actually get to have this exact same experience as someone historically was able to have. Cause a lot of times that's the past is the past and we're in a different era. Um, I mean, there's some things obviously like we all breathe, like there's things like that, that are very common that human beings have, but in a very unique way, this is a cool thing that binds us together over, over time. So that's one thing that stands out to me from from Jude. Give yeah. any talk, take on <laughs> that talk. Any takes or a take on that verse in particular? Yeah, I think uh, it kind of does a good job of laying out the context for why the letter's being written. And, you know, like he even says, the original purpose was to be kind of a general encouragement of the kind of salvation that we've received. But instead... Um, takes a um, divestiture into this idea of um, contending for the faith and kind of getting to what you, your point, um, you know, we, we can share experiences with people in our past, but so often it's only like a certain amount of time. It isn't thousands of years, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, like early AD stuff, like when this was written, again, that's we get to directly participate with the same exact God. And I think the purpose of what he's saying here is that the faith hasn't changed. Like the underlying principles of Christ crucified, risen on the third day, and ascending to the right hand of the Father is still relevant at the time he's writing this letter. 
and the principles that God has called us into regarding our holy lifestyle also haven't changed, which kind of leads into this second theme um, in the letter, which is these teachers in this body of Christians that are trying to pervert, in Jude's words, pervert God's grace into a license for immorality. So, in other words, this idea of like, well, I can do whatever I want with my body or I can make whatever decisions I want because God's gracious and, you know, he's going to forgive me. So it's kind of like the whole idea of, uh, you know, in Romans, should we sin so that grace might abound more? It's like, well, no. Like when Paul writes that, he's kind of making the assumption in the way he's writing it that those are questions that only unbelievers would ask. Um and it kind of gets me to this idea of something that I read in one of my textbooks, one by um, Mark Powell, uh, where he says that, you know, Christians don't do what's right because it's required. They just do what's right because it's right. So in a sense, grace is there as the the net that we fall into when we stumble, but it isn't something that we willingly dive into because we can, <laughs> you know, because it breaks our fall. Um, that's not the purpose of our Christian life. We know that pleasure is not um, the highest value because that's that's just the, the moniker of what a, an empty life looks like. There's all kinds of things that go into, um, you know, our lives as human beings. And, um, yeah, just kind of doing whatever we want doesn't really seem to mesh with this whole idea of what Christ is calling us into. I think the whole idea is, yeah, you're not supposed to do what you want. You're supposed to do what I believe that you need. You know, I know you need this. Like, these commands are life-giving. This is what you should pursue because it, it gives you, you know, the fullness and all the benefits of, you know, a spiritual life. Um, whereas if we ignore that just because of God's grace, then we're ignoring the fullness of, you know, Although the God's kingdom isn't here yet, we do experience heaven on earth now. And part of that is in living um, in the way that we will perpetually when we're risen and part of the new kingdom. So those are just some of my thoughts on that um, grace license <laughs> idea, I guess we'll call it. Yeah. <clears throat> what you're talking about with grace and immorality and it being a license to just do more immoral things make it makes me think of it as being like a form of like crony christianity to some degree because it, it views it as like well it's i can sales do, pitch i can do this but then there's always a way out of it and and that might be from a variety of ways of like well i just did this thing that is it's harmful to me it's harmful to others whatever it may be that's something that's sinful and yeah, God may not count it against me in an overall sense, but he also doesn't want me to do it just because he doesn't want to have to deal with it. It's also because he doesn't want me to do it because it actually will benefit me and benefit others in the long run to do it the way he would rather have us do it. And I know we just distort and twist the benefits that come with God's grace when we treat it that way, as if God just wants us to have you can still keep sinning. Just, I just won't be mad at you and doing it. Like, I feel like that's all we're, are all we're exchanging it for is, is it really ends up being about how God views us rather than like the actual impact of what engaging or not engaging in sin actually does in our life. And actually we just talked about this, at youth group 
most recently where we were talking about how for that, however many times like Abraham and Sarah make these horrible choices that backfire on them over and over again. And the most recent one we talked about was where Sarah had told Abraham to go sleep with Hagar so they could have a son because they were too old. She ends up pregnant with, and then they end up having Ishmael, but then God does give Abraham and Sarah a son and Isaac. And then once he's born, Sarah ticked off at Hagar that Abraham essentially kind of has this other older son. And it's like, well, you're the one who wanted that to happen to start with because you just had to have it your way and weren't trusting God. And then she's all bitter about it. And then like they send her away. So like, there's a lot of impact that happens in this. And the crazy thing is, is that God still provides for Sarah in the midst of all this stuff. Like she's the one who doesn't have the right attitude or treats others nicely. And yet God's like, it's okay. Let Hagar and Ishmael go. I'm still going to treat your son the way I've promised I would. And her life kind of goes on to be what it ultimately, you know, you would hope it would be to some degree. And yet there's all this stuff in the wake of it. And so one hand you could be like, well, God's just gracious. And he took care of the situation for her and she didn't have to deal with anything. So yeah, God doesn't come across as like being mean or angry, but there's still the ramifications of that whole thing in that a woman and her son got put out. Like that's not ideal. Um, Abraham loses a child that he gets to interact with in the process. Like that's not an idea. Like all these things actually have consequences. So even though God doesn't appear like angry in the story, or at least that we're given doesn't mean that the sin still doesn't have harmful consequences in the end. And I think that's ultimately like what a verse like this in Jude, or like you're talking about in Romans points to is like, just because God is gracious and is looking at the bigger picture of like, you're a human being, you're finite, you're not perfect, you have been impacted by sin. I get that the overall picture of your life is not going to be perfection because you're not perfect. Like, and that's what we, that's what's revealed in our, by God to us is like, yes, we're not perfect people, but through the power of God's spirit working in our life and, and following the way of, of Jesus, we have the opportunity, though, to step into more and more of the life that Jesus has, which is the perfect way of life. And, yeah, are we going to do that perfect? No. And I think God re- you know, reveals that that's the case. But it doesn't mean just like, well, just because you're not perfect, just screw up everything. And as long as like you just trust that I'm going to be gracious to you, that's all that matters. Like, no, there's some actual practical on the ground implications for this. Like if you follow in this way, things are actually better for you and other people in the long run, not just you get me off your back from kind of like a legality standpoint. And not that it just works out that way all the time. Like obviously following Jesus doesn't always end up hunky dory or um, feeling good in, in, in the midst of it in, the, in a world that's fallen and broken. But in the, in the long eternal picture, it is what's best for us and the most life giving for us. And it's what the heavenly life will be like for the rest of eternity. We get the opportunity to step into that. Now just the world around us, unfortunately doesn't view it that way. So we sometimes get pummeled down in the process, but kind of all over the place at this point. But um, I don't know. Do you want to add anything further to that? Yeah. Well, just before this recording, we were talking about these two opposed worldviews of like, well, you know, God is so gracious that it doesn't matter what I do. There's nothing that I need to participate in on my end. And then there's the other end of it, which is like, well, I'm going to get out my stone tablet tablets and etch everything down because I'm going to be under God's curse unless I do everything that's written in the book of the law. And it's like, I, I just was studying second Timothy, which is one of Paul's undisputed letters. 
And in it, in the original language, what he's writing about when he's instructing Timothy that he's kind of pointing him towards this idea that it's equally God's grace and our personal commitment and repentance to him. Like he puts that, he puts those two ideas together as if they're not contradictory and that they're equal to each other. And that kind of pattern shows up throughout the entire, you know, all of scripture, really. I mean, there's this idea that, yes, we are limited and we have received forgiveness, but it's in that forgiveness, um, you know, I think it says that in Peter, you've received everything you need for, um, you've received all the power you need for a godly life in Christ Jesus, all the divine power you need. Um, there's, God doesn't want to keep us where we're at. I think that's ultimately where it, what it gets down to it. There's no stagnation. It's not just like, Hey, you're forgiven. There's also a lifestyle that goes along with that. I mean, that's kind of the, the whole point of things like Luke nine and 14. It's denying yourself and it's understanding. Like, I mean, if you really have a deep understanding of grace and forgiveness and who you are and what your identity is, the whole Romans three twenty three. I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. And you've been enlightened divinely to this idea that, yeah, that's wrong. This lifestyle was wrong. Why would you want to persist in it? You know, willingly. Um, and, there's kind of that mentality that Jude and Paul and James and like all these people write about. It's this idea that, you know, why would you want to stay where you are when you can experience the fullness of God's kingdom in this lifestyle that I'm calling you into right now? So maybe that was a little rambly, but that's my, my thoughts on that. Yeah. I think one other thing I would follow up with, maybe just even clarify I think some of the stuff you're saying and what I said earlier is ultimately anything related to Jesus and what his mission is in relation to us as human beings is to pull us from out of death and into life. Right. So the death meaning like anything we do that's separated from God pulls us ultimately toward that end. Surrendering ourselves to Jesus and following in his footsteps ultimately pulls us closer to life on that end. And so it's, it's a life or death thing in the end. And I think a lot of times the whole God being gracious thing ends up just being like, Jesus is just like a sticker that, that, that we have like that shows, oh yeah, we're connected to him. But like what is truly different about our approach to life? Is it just that like we, you know, like we have the Jesus flag that we get to wave and like that's the really only difference. Like it's just like a surname attached to our name. I mean, my classic example of like, of this is like, it's like having a Christian bicycle what even is that? I mean, you could put a sticker on there that says it's a Christian bicycle, but what makes it any different than any other bicycle? It probably does the same things. Just because it has a sticker on it that says it's Christian or something doesn't mean it actually functions any any differently. But yet, as followers of Jesus, we're called to actually step into or away from and into a different way of life. And so it can't just be like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm cool with Jesus, but I can keep doing life in, in, in a way I want to, and it doesn't matter if there's any standards attached to it or if it matches up anything scripturally with, with how things are taught or laid out or revealed. As long as I'm, I'm good with Jesus, we're all good here. And it's like, that's a distortion of God's grace there. Like you're, you're missing the freedom and the life that comes in God's grace. If that's how you're viewing it. I, th- I think that's more of what I'm trying to say. Hopefully that clarifies a little bit. Yeah. And then as a, as a quick uh, side note, 
the doxology at the end of Jude is a uh, great thing to either memorize or bookmark or something like that for blessing other people. Um, it's a really nice kind of, it serves as a nice benediction or a nice prayer or thoughtful message. Um, kind of acknowledges everything that he wrote about. Um, despite who we are, God is faithful to preserve us and present us holy and blameless in his sight is kind of the idea. Um, so perseverance is another really big thing that he's getting at. Contend for the faith that hasn't changed. Don't let these false teachers corrupt you and uh, stand firm in true and sound doctrine. All right, let's switch to our news desk items of the week. What's a news item that has stood out to you recently that you want to talk about? The Musk has changed. Elon purchases Twitter for $44 billion. The bid is accepted and will be completed in six months, at which time Twitter will go from being a publicly traded company to a private corporation. So Twitter's uh, miraculously underperforming stock will no longer be traded. It will be privately held. And... Um, Elon said he is committed to organizationally restructuring everything to be more aligned with uh, the First Amendment and free speech, as well as transparency of the algorithms, releasing those to the public, seeing how Twitter promotes certain subjects or promotes or hides, I guess is a fine <laughs> word, hides other subjects. Obscures. Obscures. Same thing. <laughs> um, there was a there's a fancier word I was going to use, but whatever. I'm not fancy. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. My thoughts on it. I think it's pretty cool. I like free speech and I like transparency, and I don't think it's controversial. Am I the biggest fan of Elon Musk? Well, I I don't. I mean, I mean he's so far removed from my life. <laughs> it's like I just I like what he's proposing in this instance and in this circumstance. I think that's cool. That's my thoughts on it. Go Musk. Yeah, this is the the news item that stood out to me as well. I don't know as much about the ins and outs of the actual deal and all that. Um, although Twitter is one of my favorite social media platforms, so it'll be interesting to see how it maybe adjusts or change in relation to it. Um, Twitter has been kind of an odd avenue or platform in general because on one hand it it seems like it has funneled certain information to be highlighted and some stuff to sort of be not so known but at the same time there are ways of using that platform or at least the way i've done it to where you can curate information from people you do want to know it from like you can make a list of people you want to follow that is kind of separate from like your normal feed so like kind of all the people you follow if you will so if you want to like have like I want to follow these people about what they say about the bills you can curate that and you're not going to get like all these other people's opinions about the bills if you just want those people's opinions so like there there was a way to sort of access what wasn't being like lifted up but you do that to do some legwork for it so it seems like maybe that might be leveled out a little bit but we'll see um I have heard some critique about one of the critiques I should say about Elon Musk, like purchasing it is, I mean, just the price alone, right? It's just like, we can't even fathom that kind of money, at least in my shoes. But you know, the 
and this is probably the kickback for a lot of people who make a lot of money or have that kind of money to throw around. It's like, well, how many other things could have been solved with that much money? I mean, this is the whole Bill Stadium thing as well, right? Like, what else could we do with that much money rather than build a stadium? And yes, that's true. But we're also, like you said, I mean, we're so removed from like his reality, like of the things we have to think about and he thinks about, I'm not building rockets and electric cars and all sorts of other things. Um, so, I mean, it's something that seems to matter to him and he has the ability to do it. And from his vantage point, I mean, I have no idea what his internal things are other than just wanting maybe a space where it's not as, uh, where more voices can maybe be heard. I, I don't know if that's what he wants or not necessarily overall, but maybe he sees that there's better things that could come out of it from him owning it than how it currently is. And I think as followers of Jesus, like, we are for people wanting things to become better, whether it'll become better or not. I have no idea that'll, you know, to be seen, that's to be seen. But I do think it's interesting that, that he saw an issue and he's trying to address it. Like whether this is what he should invest his money in to do it or not. But, um, he was, you know, attempted to, someone attempted to like make it to where he couldn't get it. And yeah, he's, there still seemed to be a way around that. I do think it's funny, like he's an odd figure because on one hand, he's not sort of the polar extremes from like a political or ideological end. But yet the thing he has seemed to talk about with like the whole free speech part with Twitter has a lot of people up in arms thinking that he's going to allow a bunch of people have access to it that would be on either ends of the political extreme. So he gets tied to that. So it's like, I mean, this is just where it's like, a, it's just hilarious to, to try to nail down where somebody is on stuff like we want to pigeonhole people so much according to a viewpoint that they have that that's like their entire identity as if like that's the entirety of who they are. And it's like, we're more complex than that. That's it's just not that simple. You can disagree about his approach on stuff or what he may or may not do, but you can't just define him to just, to just that alone. Like he's just not that. So yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, again, the money part is just like the most like, Oh my goodness part of the whole thing. Um, but as someone who uses the platform, I am interested to see how it will change. I mean, my guess is as much as some people are up in arms about him owning it and what, who he may or may not allow on it that has been kicked off or whatnot like that. Where else are people going to go? Like there's no other platform that's similar to it that people are going to move to right away. So like all the people who are mad about it are going to stay there regardless, probably unless somehow they get kicked off or, you know, they're, they just like want to boycott it that badly or whatever. But like, I just, I, people are going to keep going on with life and it'll be almost like probably a, a nothing thing. It, probably unless like someone like Donald Trump ends up back on it, then it'll be more of a bigger deal probably going forward. But otherwise I think it's probably going to be almost as business as usual. And I don't know. I mean, maybe there'll be some cool innovative things that come out of him owning it that wouldn't have happened before. I mean, he's been innovative in a lot of other areas. So. Self-writing tweets. We'll see. <laughs> but Remember, it's just $44 times $1 billion. It's a good way to put it in perspective. The one thing that would be interesting is if he, I don't know, I wonder if he has a take on the length of a tweet. I know that has changed a little bit over time. Like it went from, what, 120 to, I don't even know what the current character, is it 200 something maybe? Anyway. If that ever changes, I think that'll be interesting because to me that has somewhat defined what Twitter is. Like 
it's not a long form content area. I mean, you can link to long form things, but it's, it's really like a headline. I mean, I've always described it as it's, I mean, for me, it's almost become like the newspaper of my, you know, at least now, like it's where I go for news information to some degree. It's where it's curated. It's where I see headlines. That's essentially what it is. It's like opening a newspaper to see the headlines. And then if I want to read further, I'll read further. Um, so to me, it's very much become that, but if it becomes more long form, I think that'll be a big change to it, but I've not heard if that's something he would want or not want. So yeah. we'll see, but you have any more thoughts with that or is that it? Nope. All right. Thank you everybody for joining and we'll catch you next time. See you later. One six eighters. <laughs>